following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, this morning we're looking in Romans chapter 7, and uh, what proves to be one of the most controversial and debated passages of Scripture in all of probably, certainly the New Testament, if not all of the Bible, um, famous passage about Paul's struggle with sin. Uh, very familiar, we'll read it in a moment, uh, but where Paul wrestles with, uh, in his will, in his mind he wants to do what's right, but repeatedly he finds himself doing the exact thing that he's just told him himself he would not do. And uh, the, the big debate, what the, the debate or the question basically comes down to is, uh, is Paul describing his current experience as a believer or is he describing his pre-Christian experience as a Jew living under the law? And in huge debate, uh, the, the early church fathers, just to give you some of the history of this debate, because I know you're dying to know all about this debate, uh, to give us some context. Early church fathers all felt Paul was speaking about his pre-conversion experience as a Jew under the law. Uh, the first one who really, that we know of, that uh, introduced the idea of it potentially being Paul's Christian experience was Augustine, uh, who actually started out with the traditional view, but it, later on in his life he felt, no, this really... Uh, describes the experience of a Christian too accurately, uh, Paul must have been speaking about his own life as a believer. Uh, the Reformers followed Augustine. You know, Fast forward several hundred years. Reformers came along. They agreed. Luther, Calvin uh, <clears throat> said, no, clear, Paul is clearly talking about the believer's struggle with sin and the battle the believer has in his own life battling against sin. Uh, and then... Uh, in, in reaction to that, the Pietist movement uh, uh, took the other side and said, no, this is Paul's pre-conversion experience. This is not talking about the experience of a believer. Uh, modern scholars are all over the place, all over. And I've read many and many uh, opposing views. <clears throat> and the real question for us this morning as we look at this is really what's at stake in this? Does it really matter? I mean, do we care? Well, actually, it does quite matter and what's at stake is really this. Um, what, the, the real question is, what is the normal Christian life? Right? What does it mean to be a normal believer, and what should we expect uh, in our walk with Christ? And the way you view this passage radically changes your view of what a, the normal Christian life is. Uh, the one view that says, this is, the, this is describing Paul as a believer, uh, would say that this is the normal Christian life. That if you're a Christian, you're going to struggle with your sin your whole life, and it's going to beat you up your whole life. And our only hope is Jesus' return. Uh, and that's just kind of the way it is. That sin owns us. Uh, we're stuck with this flesh and this body. And basically, you just better get used to it. Right? And there's something, if that's true, comforting in knowing that, well, I'm a sinner, but I'm supposed to be. I'm a screw-up, but I'm supposed to be, right? And for some of us, that's great comfort. Uh, however, the other side would say, uh, no, this, this, is, this is describing somebody before Christ. 
This is not this is this is the normal Jewish life. Okay, this is the normal life under the law. That what Jesus did and what what uh, what what changed through our receiving Christ is that we we have a radically different kind of life, right? And we can expect something more, something different than our life before we came to Christ. So the question is, which is it? Well, I thought this morning we'd take a vote. No, no, no. <laughs> as fun as that would be. <laughs> do theology by democracy, right? Um, well, let's do this. Okay, I'm not going to tell you my, my opinion yet, right? What I want to do is I want to kind of walk through the passage real briefly um, and just look at what Paul says first at face value without uh, biasing it one way or the other. Just look at what he says. And then we'll, we'll examine the two arguments on both sides real briefly, and I'll tell you which one I think is the truth. Um, and then at the end, we'll, we'll talk about a couple brief ways that we can apply this in our own life. Um, I titled the message, Prisoner of War, and that's because Paul really describes here a person who is a prisoner of war. Um, and the war is, first of all, the war within. Uh, and he's describing here not our battle with uh, with the world, not our battle with Satan, not our battle with outside influences that can cause us to sin. He's really talking here about our, the war that goes on within every human being uh, as they struggle with doing right and wrong. So it's a war, we're a prisoner of war, but the war is within. And the context of, of this passage, uh, if we go all the way back to chapter 6 and we look at what Paul's talking about in chapter 6 and 7, uh, he is talking about, the, uh, especially in chapter 7, he's talking about the role of the law, right? And he uh, has made some very bold statements or declarations in, in chapter 6 and chapter 7 uh, about the believer and how they have been released and are no longer under the law. Now, for his Jewish Christian audience or for Jews in general, they would have been... Uh, really shocked by the things that Paul had to say. And notice some of the things Paul says in chapter 6, verse 14. He says, Sin will no longer have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, if you're a Jew, you know, this just sends you into cardiac arrest, right? You need psychiatric treatment after hearing statements like that, because the law was everything to them. And Paul is saying, you don't need the law. You're not under the law anymore. Uh, in chapter 7, uh, verse 1, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, you are familiar with the law. You who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? That's the first of three key questions that he goes through chapter 7 to look at the relationship or role of the law in the life of the believer. Uh, in, in chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, another question. He says, well, he answers that question. Now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the law. And then uh, another question in verse 7. Well, then, am I suggesting the law of God is sinful? Well, of course not, right? So he's defending his position of the law against Jews who would say, Paul, you've gone too far in throwing out the law. The law is everything. The law came from God. Are you saying the law is, is evil? Are you saying the law is the source of cause of sin? And throughout chapter 7, he's been answering and wrestling with those problems. Finally, we get to chapter 7, verse 13, and he says this. He says, how can that be? Uh, well, let me, let me start at the beginning of the verse. Uh, verse 13, uh, he says, but how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? 
Right? So he's, he's raising one more question about the law. Uh, is the law truly good? If it is good, then how can something good have killed me? And it seems like he almost said that uh, in the previous part of chapter 7. Actually, he doesn't say that, though. He said, sin killed me through the law. But he comes very close to saying that the law is the cause of our spiritual death. And for the Jews, and even for us, it has to raise questions. If God is good, if he gives good gifts, then how can this good gift be the source of spiritual death for me? Um, so the context is, is in this chapter, we have to understand, in chapter 7, what Paul is, what Paul is, is arguing or saying is this. He's saying uh, that the law is good, okay, it's a gift from God, and that its role or function is to highlight or reveal to us the deadliness of our sin, the ugliness, the wickedness, uh, the, the desperate state of sin in our life. But, okay, so the law is good, but the law cannot make us good. Okay, the law fails or falls short to make good work in us. Right? It shows us where we failed. It's good in that. But it can never fix the problem. It can only highlight the problem. Uh, and, of course, that's been Paul's argument through the book of Romans, that the answer is not the law. It's not keeping the commandments. What we need is the gospel. We need Christ's death in our place. Right? And early on in chapter 3, he said Christ fulfilled the law in himself, fulfilled the requirements of the law in himself. Right? So, uh, so the law's function is to really lead us to the cross. But it cannot make us good. Uh, and, and Paul argues that that's true not only before salvation, but afterward. We can't use the law as the basis for becoming better Christians. And we talked about that at length the last couple of weeks, so I won't uh, go back there. Uh, so what is this conflict? And let me read through the, the passage. Uh, and familiar, maybe many of you uh, have read this often. Maybe you made a little cross stitch and put on your wall or you know, a T-shirt because it, just, it just, just describes your life, right? Uh, he says this, for, um, uh, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human uh, a slave to sin, literally sold under sin. Right? I am sold under sin. I don't really understand myself. For what I want, uh, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I, may, what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. Right? So he says, look, I, I, in my will, in my heart, I want to do the right thing. I uphold the law, I believe the law, I agree with the law in my desire to do it, to keep it. But the reality is, uh, I don't do it. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And in this, Paul, for sake of uh, illustration, divides himself into two people. right? The eye of the mind and the will and the eye of the flesh. Now, in reality, Paul would argue that the eye is me, it's me, okay? We're not schizophrenic. And the truth is that the, if the eye of the flesh sins, all of me is responsible. All of me is guilty and under judgment of sin and condemnation. He would say that in uh, Romans chapter 3. So he's not saying here that, well, the real me doesn't want to do this, and therefore I'm not guilty because it's sin that did it. He's not saying that. He's just saying that the eye of my mind, the part of me that agrees with the law, 
wants to do what's right and good and true. But there's also a part of me that's me that uh, is, is sold into bondage to sin, that is pulled along by sin and compelled to do the wrong thing. All right, so he's, he's not saying that we're not responsible, but he's highlighting this conflict that goes on in the hearts and minds of people. And he says, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh, in my sinful nature, in my flesh. I want to do what is good and right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Anybody have this experience? Um, But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Uh, He's saying... Sin is a power in our life that controls us. It has a grip on us. And uh, specifically that grip is in what he calls our flesh. Uh, And the flesh is simply that part of us. It's not the part of us that's inherently sinful, but it's the part of us that's weak and prone to sin. It's our body. It's our life. It's this worldly life. He says that that part of us is prone to sin. It's not inherently sinful, but it's easily pulled into sin uh, and the sin resides in the flesh, and it it drags us down this path against our will. We find ourselves doing things we don't want. So he concludes, he says, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power or law within me that is at war with my mind. Okay, is at war with my mind. That's that internal battle. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Okay, literally, he says that this power takes me captive. Uh, the idea of being a prisoner of war. He says I'm at war, and this power has taken me captive as a prisoner of war, and I am uh, sold as a slave of sin. Uh, finally, um, let's stop there. So, so here's the conflict. Uh, it's, it's a struggle between my mind, my will, and my actions. And he says the bottom line is this. No matter how much a person wants to do what's right, no matter how much it is their intention and will and desire to do good things, in the end they will do the wrong thing. Their behavior, how they live out their life, does not line up with their will. And there's a conflict within human beings, right? Um, now he would say, I think, uh, that, you know, for a believer, I mean, well, I mean, for, for a person, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, either way, however you take this passage, uh, he's not saying here that a person who wants to do good never does good, right? He doesn't say that, you know, we always, always do the wrong thing, because even for an unbeliever, that would be a hard case to make. But I think what he's saying is this, even though uh, it's not that they never do the right thing, but that he can never always do the right thing. Can never always do the right thing. So in other words, if you're trying to justify yourself by God by keeping the law, you will always fail at some point. No matter how determined you are in your will, no matter how intent you are on that, you will fail. And James says if you fail the law in one point, you failed the whole law. Right? So Paul says... Uh, your intentions can never be good enough to overcome what inevitably comes out in your behavior or your actions. Uh, sin wins. Uh, and, and he says the result of all, all this is that we have become 
prisoners of war. We are captive to sin. And that's the end result. And he, he describes it in two ways. In verse 14, he says, we, are, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. And the language there is of, of slavery. He says, we, you are a slave of sin. Uh, you have it as its master and it owns and controls you. Uh, and because of that, you can't win this battle. Because of this, you cannot overcome it. Uh, no matter how much you want to do what's right, you lose every time in the end. Again, not that you can't ever do wrong, but in the end, you, you, you'll fall. You will fail. It's inevitably part of what must happen because you are sold under sin. Uh, the other verse that he talks about this, he says in verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my flesh. Okay, So we become, in this, this war, this conflict, we have lost. We're defeated and we have become prisoners of war. And finally, uh, Paul cries out in, in despair, actually, um, uh, he cries out for help. He's in despair. He says, you know, I'm a prisoner of war. I am captured. I am, I am under the domination and dominion of sin. Oh, wretched man that I am. Right? And wretched is not just kind of a mild word. The word here, wretched, is kind of, I mean, it's a wretched. <laughs> it's a strong word. It says, man, you are a total loser, Paul. Total loser. Uh, you have been drug away captive at the mercy of sin. You cannot get yourself out. You're in desperate need of a rescue mission. Who will rescue me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Uh, and that's the question. And he, he inserts, you know, praise be to God. The, the rescue comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? We are prisoners of war, but there's rescue. <laughs> there is hope. And the rescue comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, and he says, praise be to God to that. Um, uh, his, his language here, he says, uh, uh, you know, when will this rescue come? It's, it's future, right? He uses the future tense. He says, uh, when will I be delivered? Okay, not when was I delivered. He says, when will I be delivered? Um, and so it looks forward. And for those who see this as speaking of the life of a Christian... They look forward to this rescue or deliverance of Christ when Jesus returns at the second coming. That until then, we're, we're held as a POW of sin. Uh, we are not finally released until Jesus returns. And they say that uh, you know, this looks forward. Okay, This looks forward and the final rescue of Christ comes at the second coming. And at our resurrection, uh, we shed this body, we get a new body. For those who take the other view that it's uh, speaking of the unbeliever, they look at the rescue of Christ coming at the point of conversion. That something radically changes from our old life to our new when we receive Christ. And uh, we are rescued uh, when Jesus comes into our life as a believer. And so the, the future tense there looks future from the point of view of an unbeliever who's looking for rescue, and they find it when they receive Christ. Okay, so which is it? Now we'll vote. No, no. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's always the, this is the great part of this job is I always get to make somebody mad. I always get to, you know, ruffle somebody's feathers. 
what I want to do, though, to give fairness to everybody, I'm going to give both sides of the argument real briefly. Uh, and the, the arguments are quite lengthy and involved. And to be honest, as is true of most scholarly work, a lot of the arguments are just lame and stupid on both sides, honestly. I've eliminated the most stupid ones, and I've really tried to stick to the ones that probably have the most validity or weight. All right? So there's actually a lot more arguments on both sides, but let me just stick to the key ones. Uh, and, and the question is, 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 uh, is Paul talking here, here about a sinner or a saint? Okay, that's the, that's the question. Because he's describing here the life of a believer and his experience or the experience of, of an unbeliever, specifically in the context, a Jew living under the law apart from Christ. Well, let's start with the, uh, what I would call the normal Christian life. Okay, so for the person who would say, this describes the normal Christian life, these would be their, their best arguments. Okay? Um, first argument is the, the use of the word I in the present tense. Uh, Paul clearly is speaking... Uh, autobiographically here. He uses, throughout chapter 7, he uses the word I. He, he is apparently describing some experience of his own. And uh, the argument goes that in, in verses uh, 7 through 13, Paul uses past tense, right? But in verse 14, he switches, and from 14 through 25, he uses present tense. So they say, well, you know, see, that was, you know, before, but since Paul switches the present tense, it means now. And he's talking about his current, present uh, experience or life circumstance or situation. Uh, second argument is that only the saint can delight in God's law. And in verse 22 he says, you know, I delight, I rejoice in God's law, even though I don't do it. Uh, and verse 25, he talks about serving the law of God. Uh, those who believe this speaks of a believer say, look, an, an unbeliever can't delight in God's law. And they would say, didn't you read chapter Romans chapter 3? Hello. You know, Romans chapter 3 says, you know, we're all wretched, miserable, horrible people. And none of us love God or love His law or anything like that. So this can't be speaking about uh, a, a non-believer because this person delights in God's law. Uh, third argument they would use, in verse 22, it speaks of the inner person. Maybe not in all translations, but he talks about, uh, you know, in, in my inner person, I value, I uphold God's law. And they argue that Paul's other two uses of that phrase, um, in, in 2 Corinthians 4 and Ephesians 3, uh, is, is describing a, a believer. And so they say, therefore, that phrase must must mean he's talking here about a person who's experienced new birth, new life in Christ. Uh, next argument, he says, uh, Paul does not describe his pre-conversion self in these terms anywhere else. So if you read in Philippians other places, Paul talks about himself as one who kept the law blamelessly. You know, we don't get this idea that Paul was so conflicted uh, or agonized before... Uh, uh, before in his other writings that he was struggling, that he felt like he had come under moral failure. So they say this is not characteristic of how he describes himself. Lastly, uh, this passage is, is in many ways similar to Galatians chapter 5, 16 through 18. Uh, and in that passage, it's clearly directed at believers. Right? And I'll read it. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, 
And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. So he's describing the similar conflict uh, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. All right, so they would say, you know, in Galatians, he's clearly describing a similar struggle with sin, and there it's clearly speaking to believers. Therefore, it must also be in Romans chapter 7. Um, <clears throat> let me give now... <laughs> You guys wrote all those down, right? You got those down. Because I know you're just dying to know this. Um, let me give now the uh, kind of the rebuttal against those arguments, okay? Uh, first of all, I in the present tense. Uh, Paul oftentimes uses I in many forms to describe himself uh, in many different broad or general ways. Uh, I believe that Paul is describing his experience in Romans 7 clearly as a Jew under the law. Right, so it's hard to make a lot of that argument. Uh, second one, uh, you know, it says that only a saint can can delight in God's law, uh, from Romans chapters one to three. However, if you actually go back and read Romans chapters one to three, uh, Paul talks about actually Gentiles keeping the law. Right, he says in two fourteen and fifteen, he says even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show they know his law when they instinctively obey it. Right? So even in Romans 1 to 3, Paul's not painting a picture of unbelievers being absolutely lawless. In fact, he says it's a conviction against the, Ro- the Jews that oftentimes Gentiles are quite law-abiding. That the fact is they do uphold and value and delight in law, in, in justice. Right? So it's kind of a stretch to make that argument, I think. Uh, number three, the inner person of verse 22. Um, the, the common Greek word, usage of the word denotes a person according to his Godward or immortal side. Right? It's, it's talking about the inner spirit of a person. There's no reason to believe that Paul couldn't use the word in a general meaning like that. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily need to, believe, need to mean a believer. I think that's kind of a weak argument. Uh, Paul does not describe his pre-conversion self in these terms anywhere else. That's true. However, uh, in Romans 7, Paul is describing his pre-conversion self from the point of view of a believer. He's looking back as a believer, looking at what it was like for him to try to keep the law before. Right? So, Whereas in other passages, he's talking about his status as a Pharisee, as a, as a diligent keeper of the law. Finally, Galatians 5. Uh, it's true that there are very very key similarities between Romans 7 and Galatians 5. Uh, both passages clearly talk about the battle or struggle with sin. However, the differences are much greater than the similarities. Uh, and as we'll see, one of the, one of the things that, that's non-existent in Romans chapter 7 is mention of the Holy Spirit. Right? If he's talking about his life as a believer, you would think somewhere the Holy Spirit would be in the picture. In uh, Galatians 5, it is. You read Galatians 5, he mentions the Holy Spirit several times. And he speaks about the conflict between the flesh and the life in the Spirit. There's no mention of that anywhere in Romans chapter 7. Uh, Chapter 7 is speaking of a person on their own trying to keep the law apart from any help from the Holy Spirit or even God himself. A person trying to keep the law on their own. Um. Okay, so that's one side. You ready to vote yet? The other side, real briefly. Um, 
what I would call that this this is describing not the normal Christian life, but what we would call the normal Jewish life. That Paul is describing here his experience as a Jew before he came to Christ. Right? Why would we believe that? Uh, well, first of all, um, as I said, the struggle with sin mentioned here is completely without mention of the aid of the Holy Spirit of the work of Christ. Right? There's no mention here anywhere of, of the Holy Spirit. Opponents would say, well, well what, what opponents try to do is they try to squeeze the Holy Spirit into this passage at all different points. Right? But they really are pushing the text to do, to do that. Right? Second argument, um, and really the strongest. Paul says clearly in Romans 7, he says, I am sold under slavery to sin. Sold under sin. Right? The problem is, he just got done saying in Romans chapter 6 that we've been set free from sin and we're no longer sold under slavery to sin. Uh, I won't read all the verses, but in 6, 6 through 7, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Right? Uh, if Paul's describing here his experience as a believer, he's contradicting what he just said in Romans chapter 6. Clearly contradicting. Uh, Romans six seventeen and 18 says, But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of righteousness. Um, uh, you have been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. Uh, it's incredible, those who take the view that Paul is speaking of a believer, the contradictory statements they make about Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 6, and I can give you illustrations, but I won't. But they, they do not uh, um, reconcile these two statements of Paul. Right? Either we have been set free from sin or we have not been set free from sin. Right? You've got to pick one. Uh, so that kind of disqualifies uh, that argument. Uh, thirdly, believers do and will struggle with sin, uh, but the language here is of complete and total defeat. Right? Uh, Paul's talking here about being totally taken captive by sin. He's not talking about a little struggle in which we fail a little bit. He's talking about total defeat here. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Right? He's talking about being held completely captive under the power of sin. It's really hard to imagine Paul, from what else we read about Paul, describing himself in that kind of totally defeated terms. Right? I just don't picture Paul going, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm the worst Christian. He says I'm chief of all sinners. But he, uh, he was a guy who pursued holiness and righteousness and I think was quite successful at it. Right? Uh, it would be hard to imagine him saying, Sin owns me completely. I'm totally, continually defeated by sin. In fact, if he was, he would be disqualified as an apostle. Right? How could he be carrying out the ministry God called him to if he was such a huge moral failure? Uh, finally, uh, in this, the context of this passage, Paul is struggling to keep the law of Moses. Right? That's what he's talking about. He's keeping the law. But... He just got finished saying in the first part of chapter 7 that we've been released from the law and that believers are no longer to live under its power. Right? So it seems very contradictory to say, look, we've been released, we don't have to live under the power anymore, but by the way, when you do, it's going to hammer you to pieces. Right? Quite contradictory. Um, 
So, you know, my opinion, <laughs> for what it's worth, I think Paul here is clearly speaking about his life, his experience as a Jew before conversion. Right? Uh, he is saying, yeah, we were prisoners of war. This is how sin hammered us. Because of the conflict between what I want to do and what my flesh does, I was in this huge conflict and I lost continually. And it drug me away captive, a slave to sin, sold under sin, in bondage, with no hope of release on my own. And so I desperately cried out, who will save me? Who will deliver, deliver me? Who will rescue me from this body of sin? Right? And he says, praise God through Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I just, as I understand the gospel, and I understand what Jesus did for us, I cannot imagine Jesus, the Apostle Paul, uh, Christians, can accept this pattern as the normal Christian life. If it is, it's quite discouraging. You know, if this is the best we can hope for, to be continually led away as a prisoner of war, captured by sin, uh, that's very discouraging. I mean, the encouraging side is that we know we're supposed to be this much of a mess up, and so we don't have to feel bad about ourselves when we continually do. Uh, but is that what Jesus died on the cross for? Did Jesus die on the cross so that you could continue being a slave to sin on this earth? It just makes no sense of the gospel, especially given what he just said in chapter 6 and 7, that you died with Christ to break the power of sin over your life. You died, you participated with the death of Christ to release you from the demands of the law. The gospel means not only that you get saved and become justified, you enter into salvation, but that you live daily uh, in a new kind of life radically different from the old one, where you now can battle with sin in a different way. Right? Um, well, what do we say then about uh, the struggle with sin? And to be honest, if you read through and you study this, you read through all the commentators, all the commentators who believe that this describes the life of a, of a believer, they, they, this is what they'll come down to. They'll put out all the arguments just as I did. They'll name both sides. They'll give... Uh, sometimes great arguments against themselves. But at the end, what they say is this. But you know what? My experience has been, as a believer, Romans chapter 7, therefore it must be true. Right? And in all honesty, uh, if we were to raise hands, how many of us would say, yeah, you know, this has been my experience, right? I do battle with sin. And oftentimes I do feel like a prisoner of war. And many times I fail and I feel like, you know, it's not working, right? So what do we do with that? Uh, are we saying that there is no struggle with sin? Well, absolutely not. There is clearly a struggle with sin. And in other places, Paul talks about that struggle. Right? Um, what we're saying here, though, is that the struggle Paul is describing here is radically different than the struggle he describes in Galatians chapter 6. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, if you could bring up the next slide... Okay, go one more. Uh, click. Okay, click once. Okay, the struggle was in. Click one more time. There it is. Okay. Uh, good old Charlie Brown. All right. Uh, if you know much about Peanuts cartoons, if you know Charlie Brown, you know this cartoon. Uh, repeatedly in the Peanuts uh, cartoon strips, uh, Lucy says to Charlie Brown, let's go play football. 
And Charlie Brown says, okay. And she goes out there and she gets her little tee and she's going to hold the football so that Charlie Brown can uh, attempt a, a field goal kick, right? So she holds the ball and Charlie Brown readies himself and he runs at the ball and at the last minute as he's about to kick the ball, Lucy pulls the ball away and Charlie Brown you know, goes flying through the air and lands flat on his back. And uh, every time, every time, this is exactly what happens, right? And, and the reason is because it is the nature of Charlie Brown to be gullible and naive. It is the nature of Charlie Brown to trust and believe that this time is going to be different. It's the nature of Charlie Brown to always try, always try to, to kick the ball, right? But likewise, it is always the nature of Lucy to be sneaky, right? And I don't know if she premeditates this or not, but you know, when it comes down to it, she just can't resist. She has to pull the ball away. Right? It is her nature. Uh, this, to me, describes the life of struggle with sin before Christ. It is in our nature, and I don't care how many times you run, run it, you will always get the same result. Failure. Right? Uh, our nature dominates us, and we end up doing exactly what we were determined we wouldn't. Right? Uh, but Jesus came along, and Jesus changed the nature of the game. Okay, He brings in a new person, a new player into the scenario, and it changes the game totally. Next slide. Okay, When Peanuts meets Marvel comic strips. Okay, in this, in this analogy, Jesus is Spider-Man. Hopefully that's not too sacrilegious. Um, you know, we don't change the nature of Lucy... But we deal with Lucy, right? Uh, a new player comes along and takes care of Lucy so that Charlie Brown can successfully do what he's been dying to do for, I don't know, 60 years, right? Um, you know, I'm convinced, yeah, we struggle with sin, absolutely. Does the struggle that's described in Romans 7 uh, oftentimes explain our experience? To some degree, yes. Oftentimes we will say, I, want to, I know what's right. I, I'm committed to doing what's right, but when it actually comes to my behavior, I do the opposite. But here's the difference. After Jesus comes, after we come under the power and work and ministry of the gospel, after our lives are filled with the Holy Spirit, we now have a power to deal with Lucy. <laughs> we have a power to deal with sin so that it is made rendered ineffective and powerless. Now, does that mean that the struggle goes away? No. Right? Uh, the struggle is still there. There still oftentimes will be in us this inner conflict between what we want to do in our mind and what we want to do in our flesh. That, that conflict will always be there. The difference is that we've taken sin and its power out of the equation. Right? So that now for the first time ever, we have a fighting chance. Okay? For the first time ever, as a believer we can have a different outcome. We don't have to be led captive by sin. Now, are we sometimes? Well, sure. right? Sure. Uh, but the reason is that we're not taking advantage of what Christ has provided for us. We're not walking in the power of the cross and what the gospel means to us every single day that we have died to the power of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves to obedience and righteousness. Right? And here's the deal. If you're, if you're dealing today with habitual sin, addictions, the sin that hammers you repeatedly, 
that you consciously say, I'm not going to do it, but in the end you do it anyway. Right? Uh, there's hope. Okay? There is power. And the power is in the cross. And secondly, the power is in the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8, we will see that. Paul finally introduces, with the great contrast, the Holy Spirit who changes everything for us. Right? There is hope. Uh, but I think the message of Paul in the kind of final application of this is this. Paul is saying that you will not overcome sin as a believer or unbeliever by following law. Casman has point all along in Romans chapter 7. The law cannot make you good. Even as a believer, uh, it just stirs up this conflict between my thoughts, my intentions, and my flesh. And it gives sin a power in your life. Okay? So if you're dealing with ongoing sin that's just hammering you, and you would say like Paul, who will deliver me? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Jesus wants to do that today through the power of the cross in your life. Uh, He wants to do that through not you doing it by your strength and your effort, but by you living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to learn in chapter 8 what that means, what that looks like. Um, You need to step away from law. And it's condemnation. We'll also see that next week. But, uh, you know, we're, we're going to sin. We, we will fail our whole life. But we shouldn't be prisoners of war our whole life. Amen? And Paul says, thanks be to God. Right? Thank you, God. Then I don't have to live my life this way. Right? I don't have to live dominated by sin. I can have freedom. A freedom that, that God intends for us. As we prepare this morning, we're going to take communion. And what a great reminder. We've got to, we, we should be giving God thanks, continual thanks. That through Christ, we have a rescuer. An amazing rescuer. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks. And just praise you that you saw our helpless state uh, as a prisoner of war in a conflict within ourselves. Uh, in which we could never get out on our own. There was absolutely no hope for us to solve this. And for a Jew living under the law, it was bleak and hopeless. Uh, For a good moral person trying to be a good person by keeping their own moral code, no matter how much they agree with it in their heart and mind, their behavior could never measure up to that standard. But praise God, we don't have to. We don't have to do it. Jesus has made a way by uh, by perfectly fulfilling all the demands of the law in Himself, and ascribing to us His righteousness, and setting us free from the power of sin and the demands of law. Lord Jesus, we praise you, and as we prepare now to take communion, Lord, just help us to be truly thankful for what you have done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And as the worship team comes, if uh, the ushers could begin passing out the elements, if you'll hold them, and we'll pray after they've all been passed out. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.